Two of the most difficult words in any language are trust me. Those may not have been the first two words that came to your mind, but if we think about it for just a second, I think you might agree. The reason those words are difficult is not necessarily because the words are hard to hear, hard to understand, hard to follow, hard to put together, hard to know what they mean, but it's because they typically come or are used in difficult times. It's not that the words are difficult, it's that the words mean something in a difficult moment. When we're in peril, when we are in a precarious situation, when we're in danger, when we're in great difficulty, someone who loves us and somebody who knows us may say, trust me. On the other hand, those two words can be very difficult because many of us have experiences when they've been used by people who intended to do us harm. An innocent child lured into danger by an evil person who uses the words, trust me. Or a devoted spouse can be guided into a world of ruin by a partner with ill intent who says, trust me. Trust me is a difficult phrase, especially when trust has been broken. When we feel like we're in control of life, when we feel like our simple and large decisions dictate the day, somebody saying the words trust me sounds relatively easy. We're not fraught with fear because we think the decisions we make are generally going to carry out. But when you find yourself disoriented by a real or a perceived danger, when you feel that your life is in a free fall and your heart is strangling with fear, practically when the money runs out, when the company goes under, when the church is embroiled in enmity, when the kids are defiant, when your heartaches multiply, when you don't know what to do because you don't know what to do, that's when our trust metal gets tested. That's when we really learn where our trust truly lies. And to navigate those conundrums of life, and we all have them. To navigate those complexities and those challenges with wisdom, in good times and in bad, we must learn what this little phrase means. Trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Well, with that in mind, I invite you to a well-trodden passage. Proverbs chapter 3, as we consider the theme, wisdom and trust in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, we'll pick up the reading in verse 5. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hear the word of the living God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. 
and He will make your paths straight. The Word of the Lord. Join me once again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help and blessing. Father, like that little lad in the Gospels who came to Jesus with his tiny basket, I have a few little loaves here and a couple of fish called my sermon notes. I'm putting that basket in the hands of Jesus. And I ask that by the Holy Spirit, You would come and multiply these loaves and these fish into the hearts of Your people. Even into the hearts of lost people, would You feed today by the fullness of Jesus and would You cause by the Holy Spirit a revival and an awakening of confidence in Christ. Trust in the Lord. Do it, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday in the early hours of the morning, your elders had the joy yet again of what we call the war room. And uh, the war room, the battleground, uh, as Rick initially called it, and we we, we affectionately refer to it as the war room, was from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. yesterday morning at Rick Couples' house, one of our pastors, where we sought the Lord in earnest prayer for you. And it was such a joy, and we do that from time to time. And there's a statement, the reason I'm telling you about it, not to break my arm and pat myself on the back, there's a statement that resonated with me that came through the lips of Pastor Nathan as he prayed one of the many times he contributed audibly during those couple of hours. He prayed, Lord, we know that with Your people, we can earn trust in drops and lose it in buckets. And I'm sensitive to that as a pastor, but you know what that means in the other relationships of life. Trust is tough to gain and easy to lose. In a high-trust relationship, Somebody that you know has your best interest in mind. They love you with all their heart. They would die for you. In a high trust relationship, somebody can say the wrong thing and you'll take it the right way. But in a low trust relationship, somebody can say the right thing and you'll take it the wrong way. And if we're honest, sometimes we feel that way about God. who whispers with sweetness through His Spirit over our shoulder into our ear in a way that only He can in His small, still voice, trust Me with all of your heart. This little phrase is our first point. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. This little phrase includes both what we're commanded to do and how extensively we are to do it. Trust in the Lord is a command. It's not a suggestion. The extent to which we are to carry out this command is universal. The territory of your heart, no edges left uncovered. Trust in the Lord the command with all our heart. That's the extent. Let's take those a phrase at a time. Under the first point, trust in the Lord with all your heart, let's make sure we're on the same page about that little first phrase, trust in the Lord. This, of course, is contrasted with the next phrase, Do not lean on your own understanding. That's a compare and contrast. 
Trust in the Lord. In his book, Difficult Words in the Hebrew Prophets, Dr. D.R. Driver, who translated the Old Testament into English from the Hebrew, explains that this Hebrew word, trust, in verse 5, originally had the idea, quote, of lying helplessly face down on the floor. Lying helplessly face down on the floor. Trust in the Lord. Lay yourself down on the Lord helplessly. In this way, we're to trust in the Lord. It's a similar word, not identical, but a lot of overlap to the biblical word faith. It's like a trust fall. You've been in that situation, some of you, the team building exercise where you stand on the table or on the elevated platform or up in a chair and your teammates stand on the floor and they have their arms out and you're supposed to close your eyes and fall backwards and hope that they catch you. That's a trust fall. But nobody comes to the person who falls and tells them what an awesome job they did. Way to go. Excellent closing of the eyes. Excellent leaning backwards. Excellent free fall. No, 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 no. The goodness isn't in the trust. It's in the One who caught us. The word lean, do not lean on your own understanding, is the contrast word to the word trust in the original. More on that in just a moment. Trust in the Lord. Around here, we say on repeat and need to say more often that the Holy Spirit's not trying to make His book longer. There's no space filler in the Bible. Every sentence, every syllable, down literally to every letter matters. Have you noticed carefully the name Lord. It's not lowercase with a capital L and lowercase O-R-D. It's all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the translator's way of letting you know it's the Hebrew name Yah. Yahweh. Jehovah. We're talking about the God. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping, only wise God, the sovereign, the potentate of the galaxies, the king of the ages, the ancient of days. We're talking about the God whose name and his triune person, one word, pluralized Elohim, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God who is and there is no other. We're talking about the creator of the ends of the earth who sustains by the word of his power the entire cosmos. He tells stars to stay put and they don't move. He calls every little one of them by name and none of them go missing. He's numbered the grains of sand that litter the seashores and he knows how many hairs are on top of your head. He ripped the Red Sea apart and let the company of Israel walk through on dry land after he had saved them through the the Passover sacrifice. Trust Him. Trust Him. It's not how good you are at falling, it's how good He is at catching. It speaks more to His trustworthiness than it does your trust. He's good at His job. He'll suspend you in space if you'll just fall into His everlasting arms. Trust the Lord. 
One of the most helpful ways to get the meaning of any verse in the Bible is, ironically, to read it opposite. To put into your mind the exact opposite, the diametrical opposition of what it is actually saying. To be clear on what the verse is saying, think about the opposite, what it is not saying. To do so with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, which is so well trodden in your memory bank that maybe we have a difficult time hearing what it actually says. Hear what it doesn't say. Doubt the Lord with every fiber of your being. Call in the question the goodness of His words. Do not rest in Him. Do not lean into Him. Do not lay face down on Him helpless. And with all your heart, doubt everything that He's ever said to you. Rely entirely on what you think you already know because you know better than He does. Now flip it around. Get out of that dark cavern Step out of that tomb that's still sealed with a big stone in front of it. Look at the light of the risen Jesus shining on this page. Jesus, the risen Redeemer, taught an entire practical theology course in one little phrase. When He said in John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God. Which could either mean this is the work that you must do to please God, or this is the work that God has done. Both are true. This is the work of God. You ready? John 6.29 What must I do? Believe in the One whom God has sent. That's trust in the Lord. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in the Lord. In the New Testament, it's Jesus of Nazareth, Adonai, the Lord, who's equated to Yahweh of the Old Testament. When Moses, with trembling jaws, took his shoes off and laid prostrate in front of a burning bush, as Yahweh introduced Himself to Moses as the I Am, It's Jesus in the Gospels who's repeatedly referred to seven times explicitly, 19 times indirectly in the Gospel of John as the I Am. You remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? This is another lesson in why it's important to read every word of the Bible carefully and prayerfully. When those soldiers came to arrest Jesus, your Bible says the Roman cohort well, that makes perfect sense to all of us who know zero about Roman military battalions. We don't know what that means. We just read it and keep going. Of course, the Roman cohort. Just look at the footnote sometime on your Bible. 600 soldiers. How many? Can you picture them in your mind's eye? You see the feathers on top of their helmet? You see the breastplate across their chest? You see the spears in their hands? Can you see the torches and the lanterns? How many do you see? 600 of them. In addition to them, there's some more people in John chapter 18 coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane after He poured out drops of sweat, uh, drops of blood in sweaty uh, portion in prayer. In addition to those 600 soldiers, there's the leaders of the religious party the Pharisees and the priests. 600 plus people come to see Jesus. 
And Judas, as the Old Testament had prophesied, is there to betray Him with a kiss to those soldiers. And after the peck on the cheek, Jesus says, do you remember? Whom do you seek? And one spokesperson for that military cohort said, Jesus of Nazareth. To which Jesus of Nazareth said, Ego, I me, I am. And 600 grown men who had been through basic training fell on their back. And they got up again and they said, nothing. Until Jesus of Nazareth said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth? To which Jesus said, I am. Now I got a good idea, said Jesus. Why don't you let my eleven, Judas was standing there by the way, and Jesus said eleven, why don't you let these go their way and I'll go with you. You tell me who's under arrest. You tell me who's giving the orders. You tell me who's in charge of that most harrowing moment in human history. He knew where He was going with those men. He knew what they would do to Him. He knew that one of those spears in one of those hands would soon be thrust through His side under His ribcage into His pericardium and water would flow out of His heart. Trust in Yahweh. This is a command. Believe in Jesus. The second part of it is with all your heart. Heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Heart in the Old Testament is tricky. It's not tricky because the Bible's unclear. It's tricky because we're tricky. We like to take to the Bible stuff that we think God meant. And we live in a day of super sentimentality. Sentiment. All emotion. No substance. One of the classic examples of what the Bible doesn't mean by sentiment is when it speaks about love this way. For God so loved the world. That does not mean how much. I love you so much. That's not what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world, it's not how much, it's in what way. He so loved the world that He gave heaven's favorite. He gave His only begotten. He gave the second person of the Trinity. This is how He loved you. The word heart in the Old Testament is not a sentimental word. Trust in the Lord with all your sentiment. Nope. The Hebrew refers to the seat, S-E-A-T, the seat of a person. It's the control center of your life. The core of your being. The operating principle by which you live. The hub out of which all the spokes of your life protrude. Trust the Lord with that part of you. With all of you which David the king said to Solomon his son, 
in some of his dying words in 1 Chronicles 28, speaking specifically about the orders to build the temple, which David was not permitted to build because he was a man of bloodshed, but Solomon, David's son, would have the privilege and responsibility of erecting the structure that represents the glory tabernacle of heaven. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David the father says to Solomon the son in the presence of all the people, are you ready for this? As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, serve Him with a whole heart. A whole heart. Pop quiz. Who gets to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, said Jesus. And the psalmist prays repeatedly, Unite my heart to fear Your name. What Jesus and the psalmist, what Proverbs and David are talking about is an undivided heart. You don't partition out your heart and give part of it to Jesus because He didn't partition out His heart and give part of it to you. It's a wholehearted allegiance to the King. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs is going to tell us repeatedly that this is the only path of true wisdom. If you have a divided heart, you are unwise. Or to put it in the words of Proverbs, you are an epic fool. I thought that any decent preacher, which I'm not claiming to be one of them, but I thought that any decent preacher would at least look at the context and try to figure out if the book that contains the verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart, had anything else to say about our heart. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be easy. I'll just look up all the verses in the book of Proverbs that say anything about our heart, and I'll just read those three or four verses, and then everybody will understand exactly what the author of Proverbs is talking about. The problem is there's 197 of them in 31 chapters. This book comes from a God who intentionally is chasing your heart. 197 times He's chasing your heart. He wants your heart. My son, give me your heart. If He has your heart, now kids, if you tune out Pastor Jordan, this is a good time to listen because I'm about to break almost all the rules your parents have ever told you. You ready for this? You tell them I said it this afternoon. You ready? Here it goes. You can do anything you want to do. I didn't say be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. What I mean, what I mean is there's no more rules in your house. Mom, can I? Dad, may I? That's over. You can, you can do anything you want to do. There's only one rule. If God has your heart. If God has your heart, you can go anywhere you want to go. You can be around anybody you want to be around. You can stay up as late or go to bed as early as you want to do. If God has your whole heart. Show me a man that fears God and fears sin. And there's nothing in this world that will be able to deter him from giving God his whole heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Psalm 37 speaks to this in another familiar and similar verse. 
Delight yourself in the Lord. What will He do for those people? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Interpretation? He'll give you Himself. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus said, you are a keeper of the greatest commandment that God can think of. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you delight in the Lord and He gives you the desires of your heart, I promise you, you'll know you're delighting in Him if the desire of your heart is Him. In this same chapter, Proverbs 3, verse 25 and 26, we get a glimpse into what wholeheartedness, trusting Jesus looks like. Don't be afraid of sudden fear nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord, the Lord, for the Lord, one more time, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Number one is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Number two, and do not lean on your own understanding. I'm being pretty creative with the points of the sermon today. Do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 5. The Revised Standard Version, the RSV, renders the word lean this way. Do not rely on your own understanding. I said earlier, these are contrasts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean or rely on your own understanding. These are contrasts. Meaning that relying on your own understanding is the opposite of trusting in the Lord. Now let me give you an example of how good I am at not leaning on my own understanding. Prepare yourself to be impressed. I almost never use myself as a positive example, but I am prepared to brag to you today. Are you ready? Do not lean on your own understanding. I'm so good at obeying that command that I'm actually preaching the wrong sermon right now. Today's sermon was supposed to be wisdom and the presence of the Lord. Because, of course, our first sermon was Christ, the fountain of wisdom. Our second sermon in the series was wisdom and the fear of the Lord. That was last week. Today should have been wisdom and the presence of the Lord. Fear Him always because He's with you always. And then you can trust Him. But I can't even read a spreadsheet that I wrote over a year ago as we were preparing the sermon series. By the way, all this is one of the one of the consequences of being subjected to having me and the other elders as your pastors, we've already planned all of next year's sermons. It's not because we're trying to hem in the Holy Spirit to say He's got to do it this way. If He wants to change any of them, even the 11th hour, that's fine. But we just believe that the Spirit who blesses spontaneously will also bless in advance if we'll seek the face of God. And a lot of times what we say is, the Lord led me to do, translation, I didn't prepare. Alright, so we prepared a different sermon for today, and I'm not even leaning on my own understanding about that, uh, but it goes really to the root of I can't read a spreadsheet, so God willing, next week will be wisdom and the presence of the Lord. Notice this carefully. The verse does not command us to eliminate our understanding from the equation. Do not lean on your own understanding. Your understanding alone 
is an insufficient ground for wise living. If you lean on your own understanding, you're going to play the part of the fool every time. Charles Simeon dug into this word, do not lean on your own understanding, and said this, we are to use our understanding indeed, but not to transfer to it any measure of that dependence which should be placed on God only. Use it. Don't depend on it. The command draws a dichotomy between, as I said, our wisdom and God's wisdom. Our ways and God's ways. Thinking that we know best versus believing that God knows best. When we trust ourselves fully, we presume an incommunicable attribute of God. We've talked about that word before. There are things God can communicate to us. Love. Wisdom. Grace. He can't communicate omnipresence. He's everywhere all the time. You're not. You never will be. He always will be. When we trust ourselves fully, we presume that we possess a quality that belongs only to God. An incommunicable attribute called infallibility. If you trust yourself fully, here's the root sin. You think you're God. Isaiah 55 puts it well. God speaking in love, the two verses right before it are about Him washing away our sin. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We must begin, continue, and end with dependence on the Lord. By depending on His Word. Through prayer. So the, way, the wise sage of Proverbs 3, who in chapters 1-9 to is instructing his son, the wise sage of Proverbs 3 is instructing his son to saute his understanding in prayer. Toss it around in prayer. Bake it down into the ideas of God's Word in the oven of meditation, and then you will be walking in the way of the wise. Because prayer, I trust you know, is not going to change God. It will change you. So you take your understanding to God through His Word, saute it in that sauce for a little while, and then on the other side, you come out with wisdom. This chapter actually gives examples of leaning on God's understanding versus our understanding. We find out that we should trust Him with our money by giving Him the first. Verses 7 and following. We should trust Him in the way that He orders our steps, including when that's painful. Every hard thing we go through, is, go through is not owing to some sin in our life. Sometimes God's bringing us through a crucible because the goldsmith is putting the metal into an oven to burn out the dross and make us more pure. And that's about His discipline, which also comes in this chapter. We don't understand that. We wouldn't have written the script that way. Why does God let hard things happen to His loved people? It's because He loves you, according to Proverbs 3. Perhaps meddling in our business just a bit would help us. We just can't see what we can't see. So to not lean on our own understanding is very difficult. Because it means you don't understand. You can't see what you can't see. We tend to think that what we deeply feel is right, must be right. But that's not always the case. 
You can be very sure and very wrong. The natural response, though, is to gravitate toward and accumulate people who will say to us what we innately think is the way it should be thought about, but they can articulate it better than us, so we will, as the New Testament said, accumulate for ourselves teachers that will scratch our itching ears. Because we started with our understanding, and we're not listening to them. We're using them to prop up our own preconceived notions of what is right. In other words, because part of our fallenness and sin includes that innate sense that we're naturally right about all the issues of life. What you think first is what everybody should think first. Because of that, we're predisposed to wanting to accumulate people who will say what we already think, not to correct what we initially think. Put it another way. It's dangerous to you, and it's dangerous to all the people around you to live in an echo chamber of your own understanding. To put it bluntly, not just another way, but very bluntly, if you live on a diet of pundits' podcasts, or you live in the methodological backwaters of those who are trying to make Christ church about everything other than Christ, your favorite thing has to be the most important thing to everybody, then you are exhibit A in the museum of leaning on your own understanding. Last week we saw that teachability is an essential trait of the wise. So what's the opposite of being teachable? It's a resistance to instruction. That's a sure trait of a fool. Your maxim of life would sound like this. The fear of the input of God and others is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, I live in the tiny prison of my own echo chamber which I built for myself. Would you all like to move in as well? God's not interested into moving into your thought school. He's interested in you walking in the hallways of His wisdom with His people. And His name is Jesus. If you're pursuing Christ with all your heart, if you're seeking Him by sautéing your thoughts in His Word through prayer, in community with the saints, and your aim, your finish line, Hebrews 12, is Jesus. Your sights are fixed on Jesus. No distraction. No click one degree off of true north. Christ and Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I'm afraid, said the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, that your mind is being led astray from simple, pure, Devotion to Jesus. Anything that distracts from Christ is foolishness. In what areas of your life are you leaning on your own understanding? Even if you can find a lot of people who will say what you already thought and you like the way they articulate it better than you thought it. In what areas of your life are you leaning on your own understanding? Do you see that that is direct disobedience to the Lord? What's the only appropriate response? Repentance at the cross of Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Number three, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. And then our final point will be, 
and he'll make your paths straight. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Marinate for just a moment on that phrase. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, did God really mean to say it that way? Here's the open secret to the blessed life. I'm not blessed and see all these other people who are blessed and feel like the Lord doesn't want to bless me. Here's the open secret. Do you want the blessed life? Here it is. It's what Brother Lawrence referred to as the practice of the presence of God. In all your ways, greetings, Jesus. In all your ways, Thank You for being here with me right now, Holy Spirit. In all Your ways, oh Father, I wouldn't have chose this path, but I trust You. In all Your ways, acknowledge Him. In all Your ways, acknowledge Him. It's the path of wisdom. Because there's no one more wise than the one whose name is literally wisdom. (laughs) That's His name. Proverbs 13.20, He who walks with the wise will be wise. But the companion of fools suffers harm. The goal of this life is not getting to greener pastures, meaning out of whatever trouble you're currently in. Bad news. There's just more trouble in the next pasture. The grass is the same color on the other side of the fence. The goal of life is not getting out of this situation into another. How many would want to use Jesus as a lucky rabbit's foot, a Cheshire cat in the sky, a charm, if He'll just get you out of your trouble into bliss. But do you see how that's making Jesus a means to an end rather than the end in Himself? The goal of life is not greener pastures. The goal is Christ. To learn to enjoy Jesus where you are. In all your ways. Not after you get out of your way. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Does the Bible have anything to say about practical stuff? Like just day-to-day stuff of life? Well, how about this? Did you lay down last night? Or will you lay down at some point today? Well, then Psalm 139 tells you, guess who's with you? He is with us when we lay down. What if you ever stand up? He's with you when you stand. What if you fall back asleep? Psalm 127.2 He's giving something to you, beloved, while you are unconscious in your sleep. What about when you're walking through the day? How about from cubicle to cubicle in your office place? Psalm 119.105 He's with you in every path of life. What about if you're in trouble though? Doesn't He somehow get dismissed from your challenges? Didn't He take a break or somehow forget that you're walking through a little bit of a pathway that's riddled with problems? Psalm, 40, uh, Psalm 56.3, when you're in danger, acknowledge Him. What about if you have exuberant joy? Oh, surely He's there. Of course He is. Psalm 43, verse 4, He's the joy of your joy. What about when you're alone? Or wrongly accused? Or in prison? Genesis 32.24, when I'm alone, Joseph of the Old Testament said, after being falsely accused and wrongly imprisoned for 17 years? Acknowledge Him. The refrain of the book of Genesis in the narrative of Joseph is, the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. 
and the Lord was with him. Now I have good news and bad news for you, and it's just one phrase. To some, it's the sweetest truth in the universe, and to others, it's the most haunting possible reality. Here's the good news and the bad news all in one phrase. You have lived your entire life in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. He's with you whether you acknowledge Him or not. The path of wisdom is to say, ah, it doesn't look like you're here, Lord. But I'm acknowledging you. I know you're here. I know you have a plan even when I can't see it. Oh, I had an exuberant joy. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me this joy. When we're surrounded by great company, Hebrews 2, acknowledge Him. God meant what He said, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. One of the most powerful weapons God has given you is this simple prayer. Lord, I know that You're with me because You've promised never to leave me. That prayer doesn't have to be reserved for times when you feel like He's with you. The Proverbs say, acknowledge Him. Greet Him. That's how you acknowledge somebody. I learned through, speaking of negative personal examples, Early on in the days of our marriage, when I found myself in new company and Tracy was with me, I had a blind spot called not introducing my wife. Brothers, take note. And I learned that it's not only kind of culturally kosher to do it, it's an expression of love. It's obvious. I was just blind. So there'd be times that she'd be standing here and I'd be in a new circle of people and ah, I'm Mr extrovert she's a little more introverted and i'd be socializing with everybody and no 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 no. acknowledge her acknowledge him how do you acknowledge somebody <clears throat> pardon me for interrupting problem probably pardon me for interrupting challenge of today meet jesus in all your ways Acknowledge Him. What will He do? Make your paths straight. This is the final part of this familiar phrase, this familiar verse, but let's just look at it for a moment together. He will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He will make your paths straight. Here's the incentive. Some translations put it this way. He will direct our paths. Probably actually a more well-orbed rendering. Because it's not always a straight path. It's that He's directing on the path whether it's straight or not. What does this mean? Again, Charles Simeon helps so much. Does this mean that God will speak to us in a dream? Or give me a vision? Or like the Old Testament priest through the Urim and the Thummim? Does this mean that God's going to talk to me in my situation, Simeon says, through an audible voice? Is He going to do for me what He did for Old Testament Israel? Will He go before me in a pillar of cloud or of fire? Will He do for me what He did for those people in the wilderness? Or will He answer me as He answered King David in reference to the men of Kaliah and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 23? No, Simeon writes. We are not authorized to expect anything of the kind Yet He will direct us sufficiently and He will preserve us. How then does He make our paths straight? How does He direct our paths? My paths, for what it's worth, often feel crooked and bent. 
I played with the Lego, uh, the little uh, Hot Wheels cars too when I was a boy. And I loved to make the loop-de-loop. Until, of course, I got a little older and realized that's actually what life feels like. Not a very straight path. It feels like Daytona 500. We're just making left turns for about three hours. It's not very straight. Verse 23 and 24. Proverbs 3. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. I don't know if they made a wooden ladder out of limbs that were laying around, or the king and his fancy decided when they made the big statue of himself that he would put a ladder of gold down into the lion's den. But however he got from the top to the pit, Daniel probably didn't think that the path was very straight. The question is not, where did the path take you? The question is, who's in control of the path? And who loves to give you sleep in the pit? Like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's narrative of the Christian life, the Lord will bring your feet back to the narrow way of fellowship with Christ. That's how He straightens out your path. Whenever you veer to the left or the right, whenever you get off course, whenever you fall into temptation and sin, Jesus is bigger than your sin. Jesus is bigger than the temptation that faces you to sin. And when you do, not if you do, when you venture away, and when you forget to acknowledge His presence, and when you find yourself trusting in self with all your heart, and leaning on your own understanding all the time, forgetting that God's ever said a syllable about anything that relates to your actual day-to-day life, if you'll turn to Him, if you trust Him, even in that mess that you got yourself into oftentimes, and even if it's something outside of your control owing to the sin of others around you that's been done to you owing to no sin of your own, even right there if you'll trust Him, He loves to climb down into lion's dens. He loves to get into fiery furnaces. My Jesus loves to go to sleep in the bottom of a boat when everybody thinks they're dying just so they can wake Him up so He can stand up on the bow and He can stretch out real good and say, why don't you all just be still for a minute? He will lead you. Do you know how I know He'll do it? You're saying, yeah, I know these promises apply to everybody but me, preacher. I just can't get it. Do you know how I know He'll do it? He will lead you because He's always led all of His children who have ever trusted in the risen Jesus. You're not the first generation. You're not the first person He saved. You're not the first person with your problems and your temptations and your sins. And He brought all your brothers and sisters safely home. He's not going to let one go missing. The straight paths does not say no trouble. But rather, Christ in the trouble. Rutherford put it well, as sure I am, it is better to be sick providing Christ come to the bedside and draw by the curtains and say, courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, and never be visited by God. <laughs> 
What kind of straight path do you want? Jesus is the one who said, who wrote the book of Proverbs, in this world, you will have trouble. Don't equate no trouble with straight path. Equate big time trouble with no Jesus. The straight path is being able to say with Joseph in the Old Testament, ah, now I see it. I didn't see it then. But now I see it. Even the difficulty that He brought me through, He is with me. He is working His all-wise plan for my good, for the propagation of the Gospel, and for the glory of His great name. So in closing, we have two applications, and you've heard them every week, and if God gives me breath in my lungs to stand before you again next Sunday, you're going to hear them again. Consider Jesus, and then come to Jesus. Consider Jesus is just the next way I know how to say look to Christ. Consider Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the template for Christian living. What I mean is this. He trusted in the Lord with all his heart. He did not lean on his own understanding. In all of his ways, he acknowledged the Lord and his paths were made straight. Straight as in directly to the cross. The Gospels tell us time and again that His face was set like a flint toward Jerusalem. He told Pilate that the whole reason He was born is so that He could die. That was the straightness of His path. And in all of His dealings, in all of His experiences, in solitude and in company, when being applauded and maligned, His focus was on Calvary. But through Calvary, he was able to look through that dark glass and see on the other side the unbroken presence of the King beyond the grave. And his paths were straight. Just like if you're running a race and you look to the right or to the left, or you're driving your car and you look to the right or to the left, you're probably going to veer off course. But if you will fixate on the finish line, you can stand on one foot if you'll find one fixed point and you will not waver. He trusted in the Lord with all his heart. Even when there was no light, he still trusted. He trusted in the Lord with all his heart. He did not lean on his own understanding. Do you remember the night before he died, he said, not my will, but yours be done. That's not leaning on your own understanding par excellence. And do you remember while he was being crucified, just before he breathed his last breath, perhaps just moments prior to saying, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, just moments prior to saying, it is finished, he said for the one and only time in his entire earthly life, my God. Do you know that Jesus never called his Father God? Except one time. When he was on the cross. Every other time you see Jesus refer to His Father as Father. Even on the cross, at the end, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. But there was a moment when the Father turned His back on the Son and all the Son had was the displeasure of the Father. The only one who had ever trusted in the Lord with all His heart. The only one who had never leaned on his own understanding. The only one who had in all his ways acknowledged God. The only one who had ever lived the life we were supposed to live got the Father's back. But even then, do you hear trust in the Lord? Instead of, Father, I therefore will not trust You, He puts in a new name. Even when I don't see You, 
Even when all I have is your back. Even when it's all darkness and gloom. When it's all night and despair. When I'm all by myself, all my disciples save John have left, and nobody else is here to help me. My God, I still trust You. He still trusts. So why won't you come to Jesus? That's our last application. If you consider Him, oh, you should come to Him. The foundation for trusting the Lord with all your heart begins at what the Bible would describe as true conversion. If you come to Jesus and you realize, why did He die? It's precisely because you haven't trusted the Lord with all your heart. Because you have not acknowledged Him in all your ways. Because you've been leaning on your own understanding since the nanosecond you could think about understanding anything. That's why He died. He came and lived the life you were supposed to. He died the death that you should have so that all the people who never trusted Him, that's you and me, and all the people who haven't acknowledged Him, that's you and me, and all the people who live according to our own understanding could repent from that garbage and put our trust in Him. And that He would credit to us all His perfect righteousness, all His life of obedience, all His, all His active following after the will of the Father, not His own. He will credit to your account And He will consider you righteous in His sight if you will hide yourself under the canopy of His love and His dying sacrifice. If you will stop trusting in yourself to be good enough to get to heaven one day, and you will turn from every righteous thing you've ever done, not only the bad stuff, if you'll stop trusting not only in your sinful behavior, but you'll also let go, pry your cold fingers off of all your righteous deeds. Stop saying, this is why you should like me. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray my prayers. I got baptized. I'm a pretty good person. I hadn't hurt other people. I'm not as bad as the next guy. You're a hell-deserving sinner apart from the righteousness of Jesus. But if you'll flee to Christ, let go of your sin, let go of all your righteousness, and trust in Him with all your heart. Do a free fall into the arms of the risen Jesus who died the death you should have and rose victoriously so that you could have His righteousness before God forever until you turn from trusting in yourself for the first time. I'm going to say it again because I mean it with everything i got. Oh God, would You help this statement land deeply in somebody's heart right now. Until you turn, until you turn, from trusting in yourself for the first time, you cannot trust in the Lord at any time. You must turn from yourself. You must turn from your sin. And you must throw yourself into the arms of the risen Jesus as your only hope to be forgiven of your sin and made righteous in the sight of God. That's why we sing hymns around here like, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight.